You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, and I pray that you will um, strengthen us even in this moment. Guide us by your own spirit. Lead us, Lord, into your truth. Open our hearts and our affections to your word, and let us find great delight, O Lord, in your law, that it would guide us and shape us, Lord, in a life that's pleasing to you. We know that we don't have the capability within us to make these things happen. We look to you, O Spirit of God, to to draw us into that form of existence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're we're moving today from um, what has traditionally been called the first table of the law, uh, in, in, into that realm now known as the second table of the law. Um, so the first table, of course, th- you think about this on terms of a kind of a, a vertical axis um, in our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's foundational to all of the commandments. Um, this is the commandment upon which all the other ones are built. If you think, for example, in terms of Let's say the so-called wisdom tradition of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, Job, um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are, are books that are meant to help shape us toward a wise mode of being in the world. Um, and if the book of Proverbs, for example, borrows capital from all kinds of sources of wisdom. I mean, where wisdom can be found, go, go and seek it out. And you parents in here know that that's probably the kind of language that you use with your own kids. If there's wisdom to be found, be a sponge and go absorb it somewhere. But remember, even the book of Proverbs is not just, if I can use this term, secular literature. It's literature that's built off of the premise and the foundation of the first commandment too, right? What's the beginning of wisdom? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a kind of shorthand Old Testamenty way of saying, you shall have no other gods besides me. Or, in your pursuit of wisdom, wherever it can be found, make sure that you understand that the wisdom you're absorbing is to be filtered through the centrality of the first commandment. So you might think of it this way. The first commandment, and I'm going to use a heavy-laden heavy term on this Memorial Day weekend, but the first commandment is a metaphysic. Um, it's, a, it's an instrument by which all of the world and our experience of the world is conceived and known. Uh, People are operating with um, some sort of metaphysic, whether they know it or not. They're engaging the world through a lens by which reality is seen. I've been uh, sort of picking up for lots of reasons, uh, uh, but some some of the writings of Jacques Ellul, who was a French philosopher, I think early... uh, part of the 20th century, post-World War II as well, who raised lots of questions about the role that a technology is playing in shaping Western civilization. And here's Jacques Ellul saying kind of, you know, page one, technology has become the metaphysic of the Western world. Um, This is the way by which we conceive of reality. We've worked ourselves into corners with technology. That means that we are dependent on things that were supposed to be made for us, and now we can't live without them and it's the way in which we we view the world i mean that i you think i know a lot of you in here would love to get rid of your cell phone but you can't 
Right? I mean, that's just kind of, we're, we can't, we're slaves now to this. So the, the point being, we live within a world that shapes how we view reality in ways that we are conscious and unconscious of at the same time. And here we have the Ten Commandments and its basic first table ordering us to this grand uh, metaphysic, this grand view of understanding the whole of the material world through the lens that no other gods but me. Your existence is Godward. And all of the first table moves you into the depth and the texture of what that actually looks like. No other God but me? Yes. Number two, don't build graven images by which you can then attend to something other than me for worship. Beware of your tendency to find surrogates for me or to hedge your religious bets with me um, so that you sort of combine together the worship of the Lord with the worship of other idols. Beware of that. It's a basic human tendency when left on either religious or secular autopilot to go toward that particular end. And then you move to the, to the third commandment, which is take the name of God seriously. Um, be, be careful to use it in light ways. Be careful to handle religious things in ways that are unthoughtful and unreflective. Enter into the worship of God in a life that's shaped by the worship of God in careful and thoughtful and reflective slash repentant ways. Think about Nadab and Abihu, right? Kind of a horrifying story. Nadab and Abihu go into the tabernacle. They handle holy things in a way that seems a little bit of a breach of the third commandment and you blink and they're gone, right? The earth swallowed them up, fire struck them down, the things of God. And just so you don't think that's the Old Testament God, kind of ornery and cranky in the Old Testament. I mean, just think Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, right? So we have that sort of handle the things of God with respect and with a fearful and reverent attitude, then moving toward the Sabbath. With the Sabbath functioning as this kind of bridge, between the first table of the law and the second table of the law. The Sabbath principle teaches us that we're not defined primarily by our labors. We're defined primarily by our relationship with God. The Sabbath protects us against our instinct toward injustice. This is why it's a bridge to the second table of the law. Our instinct to exploit the other for our own benefit. Here you have one day of the week. Think the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament as well. Every seven years, those who had economic power over those that were indebted to them needed to release them from their sort of indentured moment. So you had this built within the very fabric of the law that the Sabbath shapes for you a kind of understanding of who you really are as a human being. What really makes me tick? What are my ultimate goals and priorities? Where do I set my affections? Is my existence Godward? And that's why we come together on Sundays to worship and to hear the word and to celebrate the sacrament and to pray together to confess our faith and our sins. Because once again, on this day, the Lord's day, we're being reoriented toward our true being and our ultimate destination. Where are we ultimately going? I mentioned this just in passing last week because we were running out of time, but I mentioned in passing. And one of the fascinating features of the history of biblical interpretation, especially in the Western tradition, uh, theological tradition, think someone like Augustine, uh, Martin Luther, he gets a lot of airtime around here. They read the creation narrative, which the Sabbath is built off of this. On the seventh day you rest because in that day the Lord himself rested. 
The Sabbath, the seventh day, is the place where God resides now. In other words, built within the very fabric of the seven days of creation, it's an understanding that God now ceases from the labor, His creative labors. He providentially oversees creation from the seventh day, ordering creation toward its own redemptive end, which is, and this is Luther and Augustine and a whole bunch within the tradition, what is that end? Living within the seventh day itself. So you have someone like, like, like Augustine and Luther who would sort of speculate, which these things can be dangerous, but they speculate. What if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen? Well, what would have been their end in the garden? And the answer is not the garden per se. Their end would have been being received ultimately into that seventh day of God's existence and presence that was known to them there built within the very fabric of creation. So, all to say, the end times, eschatology, is built within the order of creation itself. And the Sabbath, the, uh, the Lord's Day, a day where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, given to Him in rest and reorientation, lets us know about our pilgrim journey. We, we, are, we are pilgrims who are living for another time in another place. And that leaves you and me, I mean, I'm not sure we're always conscious of this, but that leaves you and me in a place of some kind of lived tension. What's the lived tension? The lived tension is your call to be in a place and to kind of put your roots deeply in a place. This is part of what we're going to see when we move into the second table of the law. Our neighbors, our community, our family, the things that we think about in terms of the rootedness of our lives in this world, the arc of life toward womb to tomb, it really matters. And God gives a lot of space in the Bible to that particular phenomenon of human existence. The whole second table of the law is centered around that. And at the same time, we're pilgrims. We're not rooted in this place we're meant to hold things somewhat lightly in this world, knowing that we're not defined by our place here now. We're defined ultimately by, in Paul's language, our citizenship, which is already in heaven right now. So there's a sense in which you're, you're think about, I'm thinking out loud here, it's dangerous. There's a sense in which you, right now, as a believer, live within the tension of the first six days of creation and the seventh day, you're in both places right now. Because in Christ, you're already in the seventh day. But in your humanity, in this world now, we're in days one through six. And that leaves us with the necessity to continually, till the day that we die, reorient ourselves toward our, toward our ultimate end. We don't do that naturally. We need the Spirit of God to do it. So the bridge of the Sabbath, which moves us Godward, then moves toward the fifth commandment, um, which is, again, the beginning of, of the second table of the law. Loving God and loving your neighbor the vertical and the horizontal. And these two are so interlinked with one another. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit before we start complaining about our children. Um, I'm joking. Um, what's the significance of the interlink between um, the horizontal and the vertical, between loving God and loving neighbor? You don't have to spend very much time in the prophets of the Old Testament to feel this acutely. 
In other words, the Lord understands that these two are flip sides of the same coin. And, the, and again, a tendency of our, of our humanity is to think that by ritual observation, we can attend to the first table of the law without necessarily thinking long and hard about what the second table of the law entails. And the prophets of the Old Testament want you to know from beginning to the end that that's not the way in which God conceives of it. Amos chapter 5. No more new moon celebrations. No more festivals. No more sacrifices. You keep all of that. We're like, well, why? We're doing this sort of religious thing that you want us to do. Because you're doing that while at the same time living in an exploitative relationship with your neighbor. And you can't have the one without the other. Um, Micah chapter 1 and Micah chapter 2. Here's your homework for the week. Go read those two chapters. Micah chapter 1 is the danger of idolatry. Micah chapter 2 is the danger of injustice toward those that are more vulnerable than you in your community. And what do you have the prophet doing here? Table number 1, love the Lord your God. Table number 2, love your neighbors yourself. Right there in chapters 1 and 2 of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 58, stop fasting. If you're doing so, just stop the fasting, stop the religious stuff. Uh, if, you're, if you're doing these sort of external things, because it doesn't matter to me if you fast and your neighbors are hungry. That's, I mean, you've you, you got to lobotomize a lot of the Bible to get away from this genuine care for those that are, um, that are, that are in need, our neighbor. As Martin Luther famously said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbors do. That's, that's kind of a nice turn of phrase. And, and in a very similar way, just thinking again, again about the ways in which these are linked, and Lord have mercy on us to be able to see the world through this lens, um, is, is Jesus, right? So the, so the Pharisees, are, they ask you, and they're always baiting them. So tell us what the most important law is. What's the most important commandment? Jesus, you know, that's a softball to any first century Jews. Like, can, can we just say the Shema right now? Hero Israel, Shema Adonai, Elonai, Eloheinu. Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they're like, yeah, that's the first one. But And this is what's so fascinating about the narrative. They didn't ask Jesus what the second one was. They just asked what the first one was. But Jesus felt compelled, right, in His answer to provide the second as well. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus is saying that the first, uh, loving God is most important. But second to that, we just had the Kentucky Derby, right? The photo finish, right? You can't have the one horse in without the other horse, first and second place. The photo finishes the second table of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And isn't it fascinating that when the law moves from the vertical to the horizontal, it begins in the family. Honor your father and your mother. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot to sort of think through on this. The family becomes the place, the basic organism by which we work out love for the other. Love your, honor your father and your mother. This, this commandment is, is significant here. Now, let me say a few more things about Sabbath and honor your father and mother, and then, and then we'll, uh, how these two are related, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Um, you'll notice something if you look at the Ten Commandments, that, that commandment number four and commandment number five are different in form than all of the others. 
the thing about even the first commandment, you shall not. You shall not. Right? You kind of get, it's like, boy, I've heard this tune before. You shall not. And then you get to commandment four, and it's not you shall not. Both commandment four and commandment five, these sort of bridges right in the middle of the vertical and the horizontal, come to us in positive form. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Um, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment that's given to you that has a promise. What's the promise? So that you may live long and dwell um, in the land. So you have this sort of positive form of the, of the commandment here that's related to the Sabbath and, and honoring uh, your father and mother. What does it mean to honor? That's a great question, right? What does it mean to honor? Honor is the same term in the Bible that we use for the glory of God. So we're, we're speaking here in terms of something that's weighty, weightiness, um, respect, um, heaviness, gravity. Um, now, within the tradition, including Calvin, he's my, I like him a lot, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you might be interested to know, there's a tendency to expand this fifth commandment to include all types of authority, civil and governmental as well. I, I'm, I'd be, I'm slower to do that, though I can see how one sees the link between familial authority moving into, to, into, the, into the state. But I'm slower to do that. Because the family unit of parent and children are fundamental and basic in terms of social order and God's a kingdom-building work. Commandment number one in the second table has to do with the family. It has to do with other. It has to do with that particular dynamic being the foundation for what it means to love one's neighbor, uh, which kind of reminds me, in, in a humorous aside, um, you, you know what Presbyterian church growth manuals say? Uh, Presbyterian church growth manual? Have more kids. All right. uh, lots of babies. You want to grow your church? Have lots and lots of babies. Um, this is the way in which God's kingdom is built from the ground, ground up. Um, now, what's entailed here? Well, number one, I'm going to give you uh, one, two, three, or four sort of uh, thoughts on honor your father and mother. And I should say, I should say before diving into this, honoring father and mother as a commandment in Israel's ancient particularity. So think about this, like uh, you know, in the realm of Sinai, moving in to the ordering of society and the monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon and going forward. This is a command that has especially in its focus adults. And we're going to talk about that before we leave. Now, our tendency, of course, is to think of our 6, 7, 13, 15-year-olds with this commandment. But it's interesting that the commandment really does have within its primary view, at least from an ancient perspective, adults, the caring and the honoring of, of father and mother. So we're going to come back to that. But let's talk first about um, what this honoring means in terms of, of obedience. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, right? You just love this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Colossians 3, we see it very similarly there. When we disobey our parents, it leads to chaos. And everyone in here who has a child knows of that chaos. We did it to our parents too, right? And the Bible is filled with these kinds of stories. Absalom, for example, 
not honoring his father and mother leads to absolute chaos within the family. Noah's son, seeing him, shaming him after the flood, leads to enormous amounts of chaos right there in the post-flood narrative. Think of Eli's sons, the great high priest, whose sons disrespected him and the Lord, and it impacted the the whole worship um, of, of God in that period, and, think about this, stolted the revelation of God prophetically in that moment. So we know that disobedience to parents leads to all kinds of disorder. Um, and so this is, you know, I, 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 it's very basic. I mean, you, know, like you, you wish you could make this um, sort of deeply profound, but it's kind of straightforward when it comes to the way in which we engage our community and the way in which we engage, engage our families, loving our neighbors, that part of our training and teaching of our children, we struggle with this on the way to church today, um, is, is, uh, is helping them in, in the microcosm of our family learn what it means to be a neighbor in the world. Um, and I, and I, I tell my kids regularly, in a, in, and not always with the most gentle of tones, um, but I tell them regularly, here's the great news for you all. God keeps it so simple for you all, kids. Like, it's, it's not complicated. You don't have to go read a deep treatise on it. Uh, you, you don't have to parse it out and think through sort of the philosophical complications of what it means. It's very simple. God says to children from beginning to end, you're to obey your mother and your father, and you're to respect and honor them. That, I mean, that, that's it. And if you think about the challenges that we have because of the sin of ourselves, right, and our children, we know that that's a dynamic that we, we live into with the tensions of that and the chaos that that disorder can bring. But from, a, from an instruction, now living it out, of course, is so hard. And this is, let me talk about, I didn't plan to talk about parenting today because I hate talking about parenting. Um, I've got four kids that falsify everything I say. So it's like, why, why, why do I do that? Um, but when it comes to to parenting, I mean, I think you know this is the this is the prayer that we have with our kids that they begin to sense something other um, in their in their honoring and their obeying of mom and dad. That this is this is directing them them heavenward. Um, another thing that I think is fascinating about the Bible is, and this is maybe frustrating, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of. Um, detailed instruction about how to parent. Um, and, and I mean, I, I've been, we, my wife and I have been in church settings before that get divisive internally over parenting styles. Like, did you read, and I could name some of these books and you would all know them. Did you read this one? Well, that's the way you're supposed to parent. And you're like, well, I think that's a gr- those are great principles and a lot of good extrapolations from the Bible. We need to kind of think through this. But the Bible doesn't really give you a guide to the style of parenting. Should you let your six-month-old cry it out or not? Good luck sorting that out with a Bible verse, right? Um, sh- uh, here's one that's controversial. Should you spank or not? Right? I mean, th- these are big questions that every parent wrestles with on how to deal with it. And the Bibles can, can be a challenge to kind of think through it. So I, I'm, I'm happy to say very clearly that the Bible requires some hard work, I think, to think through from a wisdom perspective how to parent. But when it comes to the instruction to the kids, 
That's real straightforward, right? It's honor and it's obey. It's very simple. Those two flip sides of the same coin. And isn't it interesting, though, that in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, it expands on this commandment. And it expands in, in this way. That there's a burden and a responsibility on parents as well to treat children with respect and not to exacerbate them. Don't, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Oh man, this is, a, I, I, honestly, I mean, I, if you just got to see into our house like for one day, you, you, you would just, you'd want to give me a hug. Um, <laughs> all right, because I mean this, for those of you um, who have um, maximalist and perfectionist personalities, which is a lot of you, a lot of achievers here at our church, um, and, and you, you look at a situation that's good, and you can think of 10 ways how it can be better. I, I know a guy like that. Um, or, you know, it's the person that, that, that makes a hotel reservation and then is uncomfortable for 24 hours because they know they can do better, right? When, that, the, when the one you reserved is fine, that's fine. Um, when we take that to our kids, and I struggle with this, struggle with a lot, like, okay, that was great, but you can do better. And you're constantly kind of, you're like a water, I mean, just go to a little league park on a Saturday, even if you don't have kids, and just watch the parents. Um, you can see it sort of left and right. Um, there's a cha- the point is, there's a challenge to parents as well, and I feel this, I feel convicted by this, um, that we engage our children in ways that don't exacerbate them, but that nurtures them in the admonition of the Lord. Um, train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and in the end, they will not depart from it. That's a very hard verse in Proverbs. Hard to translate, actually. Um, Let me just suggest one way in which that could be translated is, train up a child in his or her own way, and in the end, they will not depart from it. what's 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 that a call to? That's a call to parental discernment. A recognition that their ways are different. And our, our call is very clear to lead them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We're preparing our kids for a heavenly existence. We're, we're, we want our kids to follow God with their hearts and their minds. I mean, that's, what, that's, that's our job description. Um, and yet we all know that the pathway to lead them toward that is so different. I mean, for those of you who have multiple kids, you see it. And I will say, and I was an only child, grew up an only, you know, grew up an only child, and I still am. It's kind of funny how that works. Um, <laughs> And uh, my, my wife is number eight of nine. That's wild. Um, so we, our, our early marriage was easy. Single, you know, only child and, you know, anyway. Um, and and uh, um, so I don't, I don't know. This phenomenon has been hard for me to kind of get my mind around. But our, our kids are, you know this, you parents that have lots of kids, they're so different. I've got one that really needs a two by four regular, regularly. <laughs> Um, and I've got one who's just not like that. He's you got to come in with a different angle. He's he's gonna, he's, and it just takes. I think that's the call. In other words, there's a two-way street here that the Bible doesn't let us as parents off the hook. Yes, it's honor and it's obey. That's clear. That's a clear injunction from the Lord for you, for the sake of a joyous life. Right? In other words, this is the green pastures that God invites you to. Um, number 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 two. Um, here is is the issue of respect and gratitude. So we see the um, we see the issue of 
uh, of honor and uh, obedience. Now you see how respect and gratitude are all are all also linked um, together. Uh, respect and gratitude. Gratitude is a trickle down phenomenon. Honoring our parents, which is I think something that we grow into by God's grace as we age. Um, entails with it a respect that's linked toward gratitude. I stumbled upon this quote from the Catholic Catechism on this commandment. I actually thought it was pretty good. Respect for parents derives from gratitude toward those who, by the gift of life, their love, and their work, have brought their children into the world and enabled them to grow in stature, wisdom, and grace. Let me read that one more time. Respect for parents derives from gratitude toward those who, by the gift of life, their love, and their work, have brought their children into the world and enabled them to grow in stature, um, wisdom, and grace. This, um, I do not think, can be overemphasized in terms of its importance. Gratitude in the Bible is the flip side of, is the opposite of idolatry. To be in a place of gratitude is like oil to the water of idolatry. They do not mix. This, I believe, is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, again and again in his letters, to the point of it seeming redundant, be grateful, be thankful, um, rejoice always, pray often. Why? Because prayer is the language of the grateful. And those that are in gratitude and recognition of what the Lord has done for them recognize that they are um, dependent on Him and Him alone. It's the opposite of, I, of idolatry. And let me say one other thing about gratitude. Gratitude um, is the only legit... Well, this will be overstated, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. The only legitimate motivation for a life worthy of the gospel. Let me say that again. Gratitude is the only legitimate motivation for a life worthy of the gospel. If you're seeking to live into the form of existence that God has called you to live into out of a debtor's ethic, he did something for me, I'm going to give something to him, that is not a biblical motivation. If you're doing it because you want to make yourself right before the Lord, this is, you get this around the Advent all the time, that is an improper, that, that is attending to virtue apart from the gospel. But gratitude operates from the platform of a recognition of the gospel. What God has done for us completely in the person and work of His Son, that, that gratitude is the only genuine motivation for a heart that desires to be obedient to the Lord. I'm grateful. I'm dependent. I'm, I'm not in a position of a debtor's ethic. I'm not trying to pay Him back. I'm not trying to meet Him halfway. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this out of, a, out, of, out of a recognition of the complete and total grace in which I live. And it's that gratitude that motivates us toward, toward this. And, and honoring father and mother is the seeds that we plant by God's grace and by His Spirit into the hearts of our children that we hope germinate in time to be a way in which we exist. We live gratefully. We know that everything that we have is a gift. Nothing is ours by right. I mean, you have teenage, those of you who have teenage kids, you know. I mean, a lot of teenagers think that everything they have is right. I mean, this, this, this is mine. I mean, like, nothing's yours. I, I remember one time I, I got into a little 
fuss with one of my kids. I'm like, to tell me what, what part of your existence is so hard? You know, is, is it the fact that you, you, you're going to get three meals a day? Never going to worry about that? Uh, you got a roof over your head? Some fun things you get to do? Like, what, what part of existence is so challenging right now? Um, because they, they, it's not natural when you are a 14-year-old young man or young woman, to think in terms of gratitude. And I think that's the call that we want to plant those seeds. And just, just as an encouragement to you and to myself, um, you know we, we parent in faith. If you're parenting with the desire for immediate results right in front of your face, that is despair. Um, we, we parent in faith, right? We're putting planting seeds and... Praying, oh Lord, by your spirit, let this thing grow into a tree that's, that's uh, a gospel tree. That's what we're parenting for. Well, last thing. Last thing. Oh, my time is gone. The fifth commandment speaks as well to something of the burdened character of being a part of a family. Now, when you're in a family, when you're in a relationship to others, that brings with it responsibilities, burdens, loss, disappointment. And here's a big one that's so hard for young people to get their mind around right now. And a limitation of your opportunities. You get hemmed in, right? Um, it's not, you can't just sort of pick up and do whatever you want to. Um, to be in a family is to enter into a burdened existence. Now, we all know the joy, so I don't want to undercut any of that. There's great joy in being in a family. But we also know the burden of it. It's why so many young couples, when they meet their first um, real bump in the road and it gets ugly for a while, or you have the second child and you haven't slept in 48 hours, right? It's in those moments that your fantasy life can go toward being single again. Oh, wouldn't it be great just to be single? I mean, that, that, that's the devil at work in your heart and your mind. Because to enter into family is to enter into an existence that's burdened and hemmed in. I, my wife and I went to a wedding last week. And it was so beautiful. It's just a beautiful... Seeing a Christian wedding is such a powerful thing. Um, and I'm looking at this young couple and they love each other. And I'm they're like, they're, you know, I have every hope. I love it. I love seeing this. Um, but you also recognize that amidst all the joy of this moment, and it should be celebratory, that these two are entering into a lifelong embrace of mutual suffering. Right? Um, try that on your next wedding homily. All right. um, and, and by the way, I don't mean that necessarily just in terms of I can't stand my spouse or, or you know, he, he stole my toothbrush. I mean, I'm not talking about that. We get all that. I'm talking about the reality of rubbing life together with another human being seeking to move towards shared and mutual interests together that are outside of self-interest. That that, that's what you're entering into. And this husband-wife, which we're going to talk about next week, this, this ch parents and children, that dynamic is entering into the reality of what it means to be properly burdened by your neighbor and by the other, to be proper. Why? Our basic instinct is towards self-love. This is why when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you're like, well, that doesn't seem like... And then you're like, well, wait, that's a lot of love, right? As myself. 
Because our instinct is towards self-love. All of us, that's our instinct. And to be in family, to honor your father and your mother, is to enter into being properly burdened by that which God has called us to live into in community. I see that demonstrated so beautifully with so many of you with your aged parents. This, this is why this is a command, not, not just for the 15-year-old and the 7-year-old. This, this is a command that reaches toward those of you in midlife. And, you know, midlife, and then you get a little bit older, the challenge is now you're fighting a multi-fronted war, aren't you? Right? You've got kids that you're dealing with and praying for and burdened about, and now you've got your own parents as well that you're burdened about and living into. That is a, that's a hard, I don't think I've got my mind around that. We're, we're moving into that stage of life as well. Many of you I've seen just model so beautifully what it means to honor your father and your mother as they age. That's a proper burden. And it is a burden. It's a time waster. It's a killer. It's hard. Um, and and it's, it can be, you know, but that's what God um, calls us to live into. Now, I've got to stop. Um, this by the way, think about this. Honor your father and mother. And the next commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> it's fascinating, right? But, but there's a lot there. And I'm going to plant this seed. We won't be able to talk about God and life and family without talking about the great stigma of our modern moment with abortion. Um, I'm going to plant that seed for you. We will address that next week on some level because this is all wrapped up in the God of the living that calls us into a mode of existence that recognizes that life and true life is His and His alone. So this no notion of being burdened, of entering into suffering, this is what God calls us to in the land of the living because He is the God of life. So I'll plant that seed and we'll talk some more about that um, hot topic next week. Lord Jesus, bless us as we go, we pray, um, from this place. We're grateful for your word. We pray that your law will shape us um, into, the, the, uh, into a, a people, a kingdom of priests, Lord, um, that demonstrate your glory in the world as we repent again and again toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.